Welcome to Global Dispatches, a podcast about foreign policy and world affairs. I'm your host, Mark Leon Goldberg, editor of UN Dispatch. And in this show, we discuss topical global issues, have conversations with foreign affairs thought leaders and newsmakers, and give you the context you need to understand the world today. Go to globaldispatchespodcast.com to learn more. And now on with the show. In mid-March, the government of Turkey announced that it was withdrawing from a key human rights treaty known as the Istanbul Convention. Among other things, this treaty commits countries to criminalize gender-based violence. And as if to add insult to injury, Turkey took this move right in the middle of a major annual United Nations conference called the Commission on the Status of Women. Needless to say, the unfortunate irony of Turkey withdrawing from the Istanbul Convention during the Commission on the Status of Women was not lost on many observers, including my guest today, Nabiha Kazi Hutchins. She is the president and CEO of PAI, an international nonprofit working on universal access to sexual and reproductive health. We kick off discussing the substance of the Istanbul Convention and the significance of Turkey's withdrawal from it before having a longer discussion about the key issues driving the debate at the Commission on the Status of Women ongoing at the United Nations from the 15th to the 26th of March. Nabiha Kazi Hutchins, I think, was an ideal interlocutor because she is someone who is both present in the room during the high-level discussions at places like the Commission on the Status of Women, and also runs an NGO that works around the world on the ground implementing many of the ideas discussed at these forums at the United Nations. And we do discuss how debates and conversations at the CSW impact her organization's work. As always, feel free to reach out to me if there's anything on your mind. I always love hearing from you. You can use the contact button on globaldispatchespodcast.com to send me a note. And if you are a regular listener to the show, please leave a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or wherever you listen to the show. Thank you. All right. Now, here is my conversation with Nabiha Kazi Hutchins. Looking for a trustworthy podcast to bring you unfiltered viewpoints and experiences on global health? Tune into Global Health Matters, the podcast that connects silos and amplifies diverse voices to give you a holistic picture. Each month, Dr. Gary Aslanian from the World Health Organization hosts discussions with guests spanning former ministers of health, award-winning journalists and authors, and frontline public health workers. Join listeners from across 180 countries for an exciting Season 4, launching in June. Global Health Matters is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. Yeah, the Istanbul Convention, uh, which is also known as the Council of Europe Convention on Preventing and Combating Violence Against Women and Domestic Violence, that's that's a mouthful, but... It is known. As I think it will be more commonly known as the latter in the coming yeah, weeks, given the news exactly. that we're about to discuss. Exactly. So it's a human rights treaty, uh, which is put forth by the Council of Europe. And the Council of Europe consists of 47 countries. Uh, one of the most well-known um, bodies within the council is the European Court of Human Rights. So 
perhaps your listeners have heard of that, and, and, and that court enforces the European Convention on Human Rights. But going back specifically to the Istanbul Convention, it's a convention that stands against violence against women and domestic violence, and it was open for signature in 2011 in Istanbul, Turkey. And uh, it specifically defines violence against women to include, and I quote, all acts of gender-based violence that result in or are likely to result in physical, sexual, psychological, or economic harm or suffering to women, whether that's occurring in public or in private life. And, you know, it, it actually aligns with other regional treaties, um, including the Maputo Protocol, which is the protocol to the African Charter on Human and People's Rights and on the Rights of Women in Africa, and also the Convention um, of Belen de Para, which is the Inter-American Convention on the Prevention, Punishment, and Eradication of Violence Against Women. So specifically, the Istanbul Convention aims at the prevention of violence, victim prevention, uh, sorry, victim protection, and an end to the impunity of perpetrators. So as of March 2019, it had been signed by 45 countries, including, uh, and the European Union. And believe it or not, Turkey was the first country to ratify the convention on March 12th um, in 2012, following uh, their signature, 33 other countries signed on, and now they've withdrawn. And what reason has Turkey given for withdrawing from this treaty? Yeah, uh, well, Turkey and then there there are a few other countries, uh, Bulgaria, Slovakia, uh, Slovakia, Slovakia, and Poland, they've all either withdrawn or indicated their desire to withdraw based on many of the same arguments that Turkey has given. Um, so really what has happened is that there are concerns about the LGBT causes and saying that this is in contrast with the values of these countries um, requiring, therefore, same-sex marriage and extension of other protections to LGBT communities. Um, also in Turkey, uh, there was a big push to withdraw from the convention following the protests of domestic violence in, in, in the wake of um, the, the increase in femicides uh, in recent years. And so um, every country's withdrawal has been met with protests and denouncing with the withdrawals, and that includes Turkey. Mm. Uh, of course, the White House, UN Women, many others have all issued statements against Turkey's uh, decision, noting that the move is disappointing. It's concerning, um, especially in the wake of reports of increases in domestic violence and femicide in Turkey. Hmm. So, uh, so and, basically, sorry. Um, mm-hmm. So, so basically, the Turkish government is arguing that this convention, uh, you know, allows all sorts of rights around LGBTQ, uh, you know, and and same sex marriage, which contravenes Turkish law. So they are withdrawing from the treaty and those other countries, which have all trended towards um, kind of right-wing governments in, in recent years also have withdrawn for those kind of reasons. Yes, that, that's correct. Um, so it, it is a, a very narrow view uh, of, of the convention and certainly the departure really, I, I think is a slap in the face of what we're all striving for, mm-hmm. um, which is human rights and dignity for all. And, and um, what does the withdrawal of Turkey and those other countries, I wrote them down, Bulgaria, Slovakia, Poland, 
and there might've been another one. Um, what does that suggest to you about like global trends in, in uh, issues around gender-based violence? Yeah, you know, I, I think um, these withdrawals are, are definitely concerning um, and they're concerning because if we don't have equitable rights-based protections and policies and programs um, at, at, at the heart of development and progress for communities, for women in particular, it, it can be a matter of life or death. And I think a withdrawal signals that power holders do not value how women are treated. Um, you know, uh, of course, there's been a lot of commentary and concern about these actions. Uh, I also think it's important to lift up that the voices that ultimately matter the most are those of women in communities in these countries. Uh, in Turkey, for example, women in communities have not, not stood by the sidelines as the decision to withdraw has emerged. Uh, and instead of taken to the streets and, and taking uh, to the media to voice their deep concerns. Um, so it's not that um, there isn't resistance and there isn't concern. And I think our responsibility is making sure that those voices and those perspectives are, are amplified even further. Um, after all, the safety, security and rights of women are under attack. And, and when there is a withdrawal from a convention such as the Istanbul Convention, which stands against violence and abuse and degradation and even the murder of women at the hands of abusers in the home and on the street, it's another form of abuse. Um, in this case, though, the bruises and the violations are hidden from plain sight. Um, so this move by Turkey comes at a, a time where there's a great global gathering of organizations and of countries and of civil society and world leaders uh, as the Commission on the Status of Women. I believe it's the 65th uh, Commission, CSW, Commission on the Status of Women. And this is, you know, around the UN, this is like a very big deal conference. It's the second biggest annual gathering at the United Nations outside of the UN General Assembly in September. Uh, and I, I know you have been participating in many sessions. This is now an all remote thing because of COVID this year. But I'm curious to learn uh, your perspective on what's happening uh, at the CSW this year, what the big stories are, and how has this news uh, from Turkey impacted the conversation there? Great, great set of questions. And, you know, it's um, the, the, the timing is is so interesting uh, on, on Turkey's withdrawal um, in this month. You know, women's um, a big focus on women's rights and women's empowerment in, in the month of March with CSW and other milestones that occur. And I think in a time when we really should be orienting toward gender parity, equity and human rights is really core for progress. Um, we see some countries retreating. And um, I think this week's discussions at the UN's annual meeting on the Commission on the Status of Women uh, is really calling for a redoubling of commitments across all nations, across all sectors for women's rights, for the empowerment of women, to ensure health equity and to ensure progress. And so stepping back from those commitments um, or taking actions that signal that you are not in alignment with these fundamental values um, of society, of community, of what it means to be a human uh, is really counter to this moment and the future. 
to that end, you know, it was interesting to me to see that the Biden administration decided to send Kamala Harris to deliver the address uh, on the behalf of the USA uh, to CSW. This is like the highest, I've been covering this for years and years, and this is by far the highest ranking uh, American official ever to address the CSW. And her remarks were fascinating to me because, you know, they hit on all the points that you just made, but emphasizing democracy promotion and preventing uh, a backsliding against democracy in some parts of the world and emphasizing how upholding the rights of women can be a bulwark against democratic backsliding in places, say like Turkey, for example, which was really an interesting sort of message for me to see coming from the United States at this moment. Yeah, it was so exciting, wasn't it, to to have Vice President Harris, you know, give her debut address um, to the UN at CSW. Uh, I think it was extraordinary, and, and her reinforcing those words of Eleanor Roosevelt that the status of women is the status of democracy. Um, I have to say that it's just so refreshing to see U.S. leadership on the issue of women's rights and equity, um, especially when when on this global stage, right out of the gates. Uh, under the, the Biden-Harris administration, Vice President Harris is noting that democracy promotes human rights and that human rights are critical to peace and prosperity. As, as you know, the, the piece that really stood out for me as well is her, of course, recognizing that there is still so much work and, and so much threat um, that this past year was uh, among the worst on record for the, te- the deterioration of democracy and freedoms. And the status of democracy depends on the status of women. Um, I think one of her points was so powerful when she said that when women are included, it strengthens the democracy. And when they're excluded, it's a marker of a flawed democracy. So um, just just incredibly exciting. I I do feel that CSW this year is uh, displaying a tone and tenor of boldness and being unapologetic about women being at the table and the requirement of women leading change and decision-making if we want to see sustained progress, equality and equity across genders and across ages. So why Um, is it, why do you think it's more bold this year than in years past? It's more bold, quite frankly, because we're grappling with some very, very hard truths. Um, First, of course, the pandemic uh, with COVID, where we have seen an increase in violence uh, against women and girls and the loss of learning for girls, Also, millions more are in extreme poverty as a result of the pandemic and access to sexual reproductive health information services and support has been hindered dramatically. Uh, I've got, you know, a a couple highlights to share on that front on on what has happened, um, which I'd love to elaborate on here in a bit. But I think that is one one big, very hard reality that we're all grappling with. And the second is this unrelenting impact on the climate crisis. And in both cases, these are crises that extend beyond borders, and it's women who are disproportionately affected. It's women who also bear the greatest burden in facing and solving for these consequences. So, you know, if anything, CSW is a reminder that, yes, women's rights are human rights, as they were recognized in the Beijing Conference 25 years ago. Um, But women's rights are also good for the world Mm. across governance, across achievements in health and education and fostering economic development. And most importantly, fostering prosperity and ensuring peace and stability. So I'm 
was interested in speaking with you specifically because you are someone who is both participating in these high-level discussions at the UN at CSW, but also run an organization that works uh, you know, around the world on the issues that are, are being discussed. So I, I guess I'm curious to learn how a conversation that's happening at the UN and these kind of panel discussions and the general ten and toner of boldness that you just described that is permeating this particular uh, commission on the status of women, uh, you know, impacts your day-to-day work around the world. Like what's the connection between these, the talking at the UN and the doing that your organization does around the world? That bridge is so important, right? So, so we can, uh, amplify calls to action and we can make these commitments, but ultimately it comes down to what are we actually doing to, to move the needle and drive action forward. And uh, I'm incredibly excited because what it means for my organization for PAI uh, is um, that our, our mission and our work together with our partners is not only urgent and critical, but it's also undeniable. Uh, For PAI, we've been on the forefront of ensuring the fundamental right of a woman to access sexual reproductive health information services and support for 56 years. And so this year's themes and calls to action from CSW are are definitely uh, very exciting and very relevant. Um, We are an international nonprofit. We've been working in this space uh, of sexual and reproductive health and rights, as I noted, for 56 years. And the trajectory has been defined by partnership, focusing on really three areas of work um, and all three very relevant to what do we do from here, right? What do we do with the calls to action out of CSW? The first is driving the global advocacy and the U.S. advocacy to ensure that the priorities around sexual and reproductive health and rights are at the very top of the agenda, Um, that these priorities are critical for policy progress, critical for the funding agenda and at the top of any agenda that's aligned to achieving uh, global development priorities as they're noted in the SDGs and and across regional partners. The second is that we're bringing data insights and research forward to ensure that policies, programs, and investments are informed by evidence and by best practices. And the third, which I think really gets to the heart of many of the calls to action from CSW and as I said, the tone and tenor, is that we collaborate with, provide funding to, and also provide capacity to support to more than 80 organizations across 26 countries uh, that are working on the front lines to ensure universal access to sexual reproductive health and rights for women and communities. This third pillar, Mark, is very central. Uh, For PAI, it really speaks to one of the major calls to action for CSW, and that is the role of women and of local communities Uh, in terms of having a driving role and a decision-making role in the health, prosperity, and progress, not only of women, but for communities at large. And and we've seen time and time again that when something is fundamental, as sexual reproductive rights are discarded and they're not protected, we see that violence and abuse of women in these communities and contexts are also high, and women's participation and leadership as well. Is there a connection between or let me let me put it this way. So, you know, 
the trend over the last few years has been to what you just described, um, this kind of localization of having international organizations work more and more closely with local partners on the ground in the countries and the communities in which they work. Um, this has been sort of a, a general trend, and you just describe it as something that's central to your work at, at PAI. But how does a, a conference like CSW accelerate a trend like that? Yeah, I think by naming and uh, that that is that is stepped uh, that that message has come forward. I think more bold this year than ever before, where you have UN leadership calling for a shift in power in recognizing how critical it is to have women at the table and not just at the table, but driving the agenda, being part of decision making, um, and that the systems and support need to be there so so women can realize all that we aspire to realize. So with it coming um, from, from, from the very top of a global body such as the UN, where member states and national governments are paying attention, where there's a space for civil society to weigh in and, and, and drive that advocacy is incredibly powerful. Words do matter. And I think by recognizing this, it just reinforces the essential role that um, that communities, local organizations, really looking at dismantling uh, ways of working that have been rooted in paternalism, that have been rooted in colonial ideology, and that have not been oriented, quite frankly, toward equity and toward the kind of representation that we need to really get to the finish line of achieving the big wins across development that the world committed to. I think the other piece is we we have to um, think of our work and our investments um, holistically, right? I, I noted earlier uh, around the COVID impact on um, degrading and threatening progress for women across a whole host of fronts. And that's certainly the case we are seeing around sexual and reproductive rights and access to health. And, and it's very important that we, we look at, you know, as we pivot, as we strategize, what are the investments and in, in the interventions that we're not discarding or, or leaving other critical progress behind, just as we've seen has happened in other times across a, of, of crisis. Um, and if we can get it right for the health and well-being of women, if we can ensure the fundamental rights to sexual and reproductive health for women, then there are dividends on that for the health and well-being and progress um, for communities at large. Uh, well, Nabiha, thank you so much for your time. This was very helpful. Thank you so much, Mark. All right. Thank you all for listening. Thank you to Nabiha Kazi Hutchins. That was very helpful and interesting and obviously timely given many of the events we discussed. So thank you. All right. We'll see you next time. Bye, everyone.